The text for the sermon of this morning, brothers and sisters, is taken from John chapter 6, verses 16 through 21. John 6, beginning at verse 16. God's word speaks to us as follows. Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. And it was already dark, and Jesus had not come to them. Then the sea arose, because a great wind was blowing. So when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and drawing near the boat, and they were afraid. But he said to them, It is I, do not be afraid. Then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. In response to the proclamation of God's word, we'll sing together hymn 55, the stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is Jesus? It's a question not for the world. It's a question for covenant people to wrestle with. And those with a keen eye and ear can discover that he often challenges how they picture him or want him to be. This is no different today than when the Lord Jesus walked this earth. And it's because he never came to earth to please men, but to please his God. And that meant that for some... His ministry on earth was overall a disappointment. For various reasons, people got their hopes up only to find those same hopes dashed. It's the kind of observation that we can't help but make as we read the verses prior to our text. John 6 is really addressing the question, who is Jesus? After the feeding of the 5,000, the great crowd of Israelites certainly had their mind made up. Thousands of people wanted to make Jesus their king. And for what better reason than that he had just filled their bellies all from five loaves and two fish. The Lord Jesus, however, would have none of it. Earlier in his ministry, as Matthew records, Jesus refused Satan's offer to make him ruler of this world. Now here too, he turns down this human attempt to crown him. Instead, he leaves the scene, leaves his own disciples, and he goes to a mountainside to pray. He dashes the hopes of Thousands of people, even if they wanted to crown him king by force. 
The truth is, brothers and sisters, the people, including his very own disciples, were wrong about who Jesus Christ really is. Yes, Christ is the anointed king of kings, but they didn't see it like that. Their conception of his kingship was an all too worldly, all too human conception. They wanted to force him to be their political leader, their social reformer, their fighting Messiah. The Lord Jesus, however, doesn't play ball. Neither, for that matter, does he want his core group of disciples, his own inner circle, to have this unhealthy, unscriptural, inadequate perspective of his kingship, yes, of his messiahship. So he has to somehow move them towards a deeper, a truer understanding of who he really is. He wants to be known as the one sent by God himself, as one to be crowned on that basis alone. And he wants his disciples to put their faith in that identity, to learn to follow him in spite of the great cost involved. That's what our text is all about. It's not meant in the first place to wow us, to amaze us, though it does that. It's meant to teach us the real truth of who Christ is in all of his, at this point, hidden glory so that we would worship him as the Son of God. So I proclaim to you the word of our God in this way. Lord Jesus privately reveals his messianic glory to his inner circle at the stormy sea. I ask your attention for two things coming from our text this morning. First, the disciples' real fear. Secondly, the Lord's reassuring presence. Our text begins, Now when evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat, and went over the sea toward Capernaum. Our text is situated on the Sea of Galilee. It's a body of water that is some 12 miles long from north to south and seven miles wide, roughly. The disciples would have set out from the northeastern side of the sea and headed west toward Capernaum. There they go on their six or seven mile trip. And our text adds for us that by this time it was dark And the Lord Jesus had yet to join them. They had expected him to arrive a bit sooner so that they could all go together, but that obviously doesn't happen. Now, the Sea of Galilee, we need to know, sits some 600 feet below sea level. And it's situated in a bit of a wind tunnel. So cool winds from the southeast blew in or blow in and would displace the warm air sitting on the lake and violently stir up the sea without any warning. So even though this Sea of Galilee is an inland lake, it still gets a lot of storms, which is exactly what happens in our text. 
Verse 18, then the sea arose, got rough, in other words, because a great wind was blowing. It's a crisis situation for these disciples caught in the middle of this storm. There were professional fishermen among the disciples at sea. There were seasoned navigators of this particular lake. And they're in trouble. They're making little to no progress toward their destination. We gather from Matthew's gospel account that from evening until the fourth watch of the night, that's between 3 and 6 a.m., they had only managed to row three, three and a half miles. They've been straining at the oars for a long time, and they're trying to master these choppy waves. They may very well have been aware of Hebrew poetry, in which the sea is represented as ominous, destructive, untamable, full of chaos. The sea had these sharply negative connotations. The Jews weren't much of a seafaring people themselves, and the disciples were now getting first-hand experience of why so many Jews were this way, felt this way about the sea. They had been used to squalls on the sea, yes. But this was something unprecedented. We can only imagine how frightened they were. The fascinating thing, though, is that John doesn't tell us that the disciples were terrified because of the rough waters and the stormy winds. No. We have to keep reading in order to be told that the disciples were afraid. Yes, terrified. They are straining at the oars, and all of a sudden they look out onto the lake, and they see the Lord Jesus approaching them. Except he doesn't have any boat or ship as his conveyance on this chaotic sea. No, he has his own two feet. He is walking effortlessly. He's making his way across this chaotic, menacing body of water. Well, what's he doing here? Isn't it the case, brothers and sisters, that Jesus is showing here how different he is? John began his gospel by writing, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Christ was God, and he became God incarnate, which meant that for much of his earthly life, his divine nature was hidden, was veiled by the mask of his humanity. He looked an ordinary man. He lived much of an ordinary life. Yet there were moments, and here's one of them, where his divinity shone through his humanity. Here he is illustrating just how set apart he really is. He's doing something that only God can do. The Holy Spirit is pointing out for us here something you and I cannot do. We cannot go to people, minister to people, just like Christ. 
He's different. We can walk alongside people. He can walk right up to people with no obstacles whatsoever standing in his way. He comes to his disciples clothed in mortality, but he's breaking through, as it were, in his divinity, his divine nature. Yes, brothers and sisters, please take note that the main reason John gives us all those details of the storm, the winds, and how little progress Jesus' disciples were making is not so much to show us their terrible predicament. Instead, it's to magnify the impossibility, the inconceivability of the Lord Jesus' ability to get to them. Come alongside them. He did what no human being could do. He walked that sea, and the waters supported him. Notice also that he's not doing this in front of that crowd of 5,000 people who wanted to make him king. He's doing this after nightfall, in the dark, We don't read of anyone else out on the Sea of Galilee but Jesus and his disciples. Jesus is deliberately revealing himself here exclusively to his disciples. He's pleased here to reveal his divinity, his messianic glory and power privately to his inner circle. He wants to be known by them not only as the one who can multiply loaves and fish, but also as the one to whom all nature submits, to whom menacing waters submit. It's no wonder his disciples are frightened out of their minds when they see him striding across the water. Jesus is revealing himself as none other than God himself. Consider the Old Testament. Often what you find there is that the sea, the lake, represents evil, chaos. Pagan myths even said that creation began when certain gods slew sea creatures. These gods knew how to tame these waters. Scripture makes clear that that power, that ability really only belongs to God. Psalm 74 verse 13, you divided the sea by your strength. You broke the heads of the sea serpents in the waters. Psalm 89 verse 9, you rule the raging of the sea. When its, wa- when its waves rise, you still them. Job 9 verse 8, God alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. God's word is saying that this power over the sea, this can only be said of Yahweh, the Lord. Only he has sovereignty over the world he created. Only he rules over the sea. And so as these disciples are frantically trying to get to shore, they see Yahweh, the Lord, 
walking toward them. So again, walking on the water isn't, wasn't something Jesus did just to wow his disciples. No, it was a powerful demonstration of who he really is. He displays his messianic glory to his inner circle. He is illustrating that he is the one that the Old Testament promised would come, the one who would share in the power and the majesty of the eternal God. Brothers and sisters, it's clear that this is Jesus' reason for his miracle. It's also John's reason for including this account in his narrative so that we might see who Jesus is and why he came. Consider in this regard what John records before this account. That's why we read from the first part of this chapter. There John records for us the feeding of the 5,000. And within that account, in verse 4 of John 6, John makes a point of telling the reader that the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was near. That is actually a very significant detail for us as we consider our text. Because that's supposed to make us connect the story of the feeding of the 5,000 with the Passover itself. That's when God, we know it, freed the children of Israel from Egypt and led them through the wilderness to the promised land on their way during their, soldier, their wilderness sojourn. God fed his children with what? Manna, bread from heaven. You turn to the New Testament, come to John 6, and you discover in this chapter allusions to the Exodus. God in Christ is feeding his people. And now in our text, when we read of Jesus walking on water, we need to understand that as part of the same story. The children of Israel began their journey to true freedom by walking through the Red Sea with the waters parting before them. And the one who parted the waters, Moses, the prophet of the Old Testament, the prophet who foreshadowed the greater prophet to come, the greater Moses, Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen. Now, there's Jesus. He's just being hailed by the people as the prophet who is to come into the world. Verse 14 of chapter 6. True, many in the crowd quite misunderstood what such a prophet was supposed to do. But if we now pull it all together, we can put it this way. Jesus, having fed the people like Moses did in the wilderness, now performs a sea miracle like the parting of the sea at the Exodus. He's doing something here that begs for reflection on the part of the disciples and on our part. 
He is revealing here that he is the prophet to come who is God himself. His disciples, when they see him, cannot escape the fact that in Jesus, God himself has come to bring about another exodus, a greater exodus, this time from sin and Satan. So when he walks now on the waters, he shows his authority over waves and winds. He's the son of God. And he foretells as prophet of God what he will do on the cross. He's going to conquer sin, evil, and rebellion once for all for good. His glory that he's revealing here is but a foretaste of the full display of his messianic glory when he will fight in a far greater and more perfect way, and definitive way, to bring peace, calmness, order in a world filled with chaos, sin, hatred, and death. And he's going to overcome it. This is the one sent from the Father. That's an emphasis of John's gospel throughout. This is the Son of God whose walking on water points to something even greater to come. Now, his disciples, would they understand all this? Probably not. But they did have a very real fear. They understood that the one coming toward them ruled over the sea. He is one very human, also very divine. They are terrified because they're confronted with the very revelation of God himself. It's a fear that evidently also prevented them from being able to immediately recognize him as their master. That's why he identifies himself as we're going to see in a moment. But there he is. He's come to them in their distress. He's come as their Messiah, as the Lord. And that is absolutely wonderful, terrifying. I think we can't help but put ourselves in that very situation. You're on the lake. You have whales crashing against the gunwales of the ship. You are furiously straining at the oars to achieve any measure of progress. But you are powerless. You are, your life is hanging in the balance. You look up. And you see the very manifestation of God himself walking towards you. What's your reaction going to be? Thanks for coming to our rescue. No. Terror. Fear. This just doesn't happen. It's got to be supernatural. This must be the hand of God himself. How small we really are. That's how the disciples respond to the work of God. 
brings us to our second point where we consider the Lord's reassuring presence. Well, the Lord Jesus says to his terrified disciples, it is I, do not be afraid. Don't be terrified. It's the only dialogue we actually hear in our text, but there's a lot of meaning in these words. At a very basic level, this is simply Jesus identifying himself in order to calm the fear of his disciples. You don't need to be afraid because it is I who stand before you. At the same time, his expression, it is I, is more common in John's gospel in particular. What he is saying here is actually exactly the same as when he says elsewhere, I am. This is actually the first time Jesus speaks this way. Soon he's going to point to himself and say, I'm the bread of life, chapter 6, verse 35. I am the door, 10, verse 9. I am the good shepherd, 10, verse 11, 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life, chapter 14, 6, and so on. And so here he says, I am, don't be afraid. And that brings our minds back to God's self-revelation to Moses at the burning bush. That's where he said, I am who I am. He also says it a number of times in the prophecy of Isaiah, I am he. Is this really how Jesus is speaking here to his disciples? Better yet, is this how his disciples would have understood him? That he's saying, I am who I am, don't be afraid. For again, this is also a way of simply saying, it is I. Without having any theological baggage attached to it. It also appears on the lips of the man born blind after he's healed. Chapter 9, verse 9, I am the man. Well, so too, I think the disciples would have heard Jesus as simply identifying himself. It is I. It's not a ghost or a phantom. It is I, your master and your teacher, Jesus. Even so, brothers and sisters, even if the disciples would have understood it this way, it still doesn't take anything away from the fact of what's actually happening. Jesus is walking on water. He is defying the wind and the waves. He is showing his messianic glory, his divine power. Even if he's simply identifying that it's him, he's pointing out at the very same time that he's the Lord. He's no mere human, he's God. Jesus withdrew from the crowds in order to reveal himself to his disciples as completely different than the multitude pictured him or wanted him to be. He's not just a candidate for royalty. He's not just some political liberator. No, he is God Almighty. And therefore, don't be afraid 
He is in complete control over the situation. He reassures his inner circle, I am here. I am present. I am the Lord Jesus. Don't be afraid. And that's just as well a message for you today, congregation. Like the disciples, you too are, as it were, part of Christ's inner circle. You are in a special relationship with him, covenant fellowship. You are called to believe in him. This account is not a parable. It's a historical narrative. It actually happened. And it's for our instruction. Son of God revealed his glory, his power to his disciples. He shows it to us too. We see it by faith. There are a lot of times in your life and often you don't know when they're going to come. When, if you will, the wind roars against you and the sea crashes around you and you struggle to make your way through. You strain at the oars trying to gain some momentum. You're trying to get somewhere, but you're not. You're going nowhere fast. The boat's filling up with water, and you're about to be submerged in the drink. Things seem to be out of control. That's in the Lord's providence. Contrary to what many Christians might claim, Sometimes God gives you more than you can handle. Suffering never asks you if you're ready. Overwhelming suffering does come our way because we live in a broken world with broken people. But in the chaos, you need to listen and look. Over the sound of the roar of the waves and the wind, you see and you hear Jesus Christ who says to you in his word, it is I, your mighty God. Don't be afraid. Take to heart. Remember who I am. Remember my power. Remember my glory. I am the very essence of holiness and glory All of my ways are right and my decisions are best. I may give you more than you can handle, but never more than I can handle. Those are words that you need to treasure in your heart and words you need to listen for. As God visits you with difficulties, tensions in your life, have your ears peeled. As you face trouble, as you face opposition, as you face rejection, listen by faith to your Savior as he reassures you of his constant presence. No, he's not necessarily going to take away all the difficulties and tensions and make your life smooth sailing. 
but he gets you through the darkness. Consider the impressive words of the Lord in Isaiah 43. Fear not. There it is again. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by your name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, not if, but when, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overflow you. Do you hear that, brothers and sisters? The word of comfort that God spoke to Old Testament Israel, Christ speaks now to his inner circle. To you and to me. Christ carries you through the storms of life. He has the power and the authority to do precisely what pleases him anywhere he wants to do it. He's the son of God who gives you life and protection. It is I. Don't be afraid. Well, what is the result of, if you will, taking Jesus on board, of embracing his reassuring presence, of trusting, your li- trusting him with your life? Well, consider the last part of our text. Verse 21, then they willingly received him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land where they were going. That's remarkable. In this very brief story in John 6, you don't have just one miracle. You got two here. Jesus embarks on the boat, and the text says that immediately the boat reached the shore. They are now at Capernaum. It tells us that when he got in, there were no further problems. Turmoil of the sea came to an end. The disciples gained some headway. They make it to shore. Well, why is it that the Lord Jesus sees to it that immediately, and we take our word, uh, we take the text at its word, that immediately the boat docks at the harbor? Well, indeed, he is impressing upon us that he not only promises us to go through our trials with us, but also promises to lead us through them to their conclusion. He doesn't just guide you, but he also restores your life at the end. It's as we read from Psalm 107. Then they cry out to the Lord in their trouble, and he brings them out of their distresses. He calms the storm so that his waves are still. Then they are glad because they are quiet. So he guides them to their safe haven. This is what Christ does. And there's a sense in which he has to. If he were truly God, then he would have to do what is consistent with God's dealings in the past. Our God did not just take his people Israel through the midst of the sea, the Red Sea on dry ground. He certainly did that through his power. But he brought them ultimately to safety, to the promised land. No, that didn't happen overnight. 
Just like the Lord doesn't restore our fortunes overnight. But in his faithfulness, he does complete what he has begun in us. He does it in his own way and in his own time. And we can find peace, joy, security in that. In the midst of stormy weather, our text reassures us of God's abiding presence in our lives. Well, brothers and sisters, what is so striking in our passage is that the Lord who walks on water and then wondrously brings the boat to its destination is so very unlike what that crowd thought he was when they wanted to force him to be their king. He's one who does not work out of his own accord. Together with his father, together with the God of history, Christ leads and he shepherds his people. He does what none of us, what no human king can do. He's far more than any earthly king or leader but he's exactly who we need. It's only in him that we're going to find our rest. He's the one who not only traversed the stormy sea of Galilee, he tread the waves of hellish torment underfoot to bring you peace and rest and life, to bring you a salvation greater than any earthly king could do. He died to redeem his people, to obtain an eternal inheritance for us. This is your God. True man, true God, perfect Lord, wonderful Savior, always present, always powerful, always calming. Listen for him. Look for him. He doesn't let you down. Amen.